0: following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Well, we are, uh, we are actually launching today a new series. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is really a fantastic and exciting book in the Old Testament that recounts Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild part of Jerusalem, to go from the Persian Empire, formerly the Babylonian Empire, back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild especially the wall of Jerusalem. Now, I do want to mention this really quickly, and I'm only going to say a little bit about it right now because you're going to learn more about it in the coming weeks is that we are this fall actually going to be launching out in an initiative to try and build something ourselves as well. We would love to see the Lord root us more deeply in our city by providing for us a permanent facility. And in October, we will be launching a campaign or an initiative we call the Grow Deep Initiative that is aimed at exactly that, asking the Lord to give us a place permanently. And you'll be getting something this week, hopefully, to tell you a little bit about what's coming. Again, I'm not going to say much more about it now because you'll learn more about it in the coming weeks. But here's the biggest thing that I want us to see this morning is that as we open up Nehemiah, what's so striking here is that when Nehemiah starts and tells us about this project, his building project, that the project starts with prayer. Before any stone is laid, before any group is organized, before any team is built, Before any trips are taken, Nehemiah prays. He begins his project with prayer. So that's where we're going to begin this morning, in God's Word and in praying together that God would form and shape us even as we consider some really big things. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah chapter 1, or you can follow along with me as I read and follow along on the screen above. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep my commandments and you do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Let's pray. Father, your word does stand forever. We pray that we would come before and under your word. That we might learn from it. Lord, we do come before you in prayer in such the incredible hope that you have told us as we read this morning, as Mike reminded us even in our time of confession, that you are very near, that you love to listen to us in prayer. Lord, will you also speak to us through your word? We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, there was a handful of college friends They had decided that about fifteen years after college, all of them were about thirty years old. I guess that's not fifteen years. But around thirty years, they decided that they were gonna have a reunion, wanted to get back together. So they asked around where should they meet, and one of them suggested, let's go to the Burning Embers restaurant, because it's got a great bar and a great bartender, and there's some really great cocktails we could have. So they did, and they had a great time and Of course, as people do, they kind of faded away, but about 15 years later, when they were all about 45, they wanted to get back together again, and they tried to figure out where should we go to get back together, and someone suggested, let's go to the Burning Embers restaurant because it's got really good food and they've got a pretty extensive wine list. And then about 15 years later, when they were all about 60, they decided it's time for a reunion again, and they tried to figure out where should we go, and someone suggested, you know, we should go to the Burning Embers restaurant because it's nice and quiet, and we can have a good private conversation there and get to know each other. And then at age 75, they got back together again, and someone suggested, you know, for our reunion this time, we should go to the Burning Embers restaurant because it's pretty accessible and we can get around okay. Even They even have an elevator that's gonna be really helpful. And then at age 90, this same group of college friends wanted to get back together again, and as they discussed where they should go, one of them suggested, you know, we could go to the Burning Embers restaurant because we've never been there before. (laughs) Now, that's probably funnier to some of you than it is to others. As I get older, it's less funny to me. But that idea of remembering is actually really key even to what's going on in Nehemiah's prayer here. Nehemiah, in fact, centers much of his prayer on this concept of remembering. The idea that not only we are called to remember particular things, but even interestingly enough, we are calling on God to remember. So we're gonna look at Nehemiah's prayer here not only as a window into what's going on in God with God's people at this time, but also as a model even for us in how we are to pray. I think we see three things pretty distinctly in this prayer about remembering. The first is that we are to remember the way things are, to be honest with ourselves remembering the way things are. Secondly, we are to remember why things got that way. And then third, we're going to we're ask God to remember some things. So let's dig into that this morning. First, what do I mean? that we are remembering how things are. We'll look again at verses 1 through 4. Let me read them once again, and they're up on the screen too if you'd like to follow along. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And listen how Nehemiah responds. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, what's going on there? Why is Nehemiah so saddened by the news that comes to him from Jerusalem? Well, let me give you just a little bit of background. Where Nehemiah is right now is in the province of Susa, which is currently, at this time, in the empire of Persia. It's a good ways from Jerusalem. Let's go back a little bit and actually talk about what had happened. Uh, Babylon had actually attacked Jerusalem and Judah. Israel, the southern portion of Israel, and taken many of the Israelites away to Babylon in exile. Left some, but most of those who were left were left without any leadership. The temple was destroyed. The city was really sacked in many ways, and those who were in Babylon were trained up to be Babylonians. But of course, as history goes, new powers rise up, and Persia, attacked Babylon and took over Babylon. So now, a lot of those folks who were in Jerusalem, who were Israelites, who were taken to Babylon, they're now under Persian rule. That one of those is Nehemiah. And he gets word from somebody who's still in Jerusalem who comes to Persia and says, let me tell you about the state of things. Now, if you've ever, you know, lived in a place and maybe moved away and that place where you live was hit by a hurricane or a fire, or an earthquake, or some sort of terrible disaster, you can kind of feel Nehemiah's pain, right? Is that his homeland is destroyed. Nehemiah didn't experience the attacks of Babylon. He was too young for that, but he feels it, right? He feels the brokenness of his homeland. But you know, it actually goes even deeper than that. I think Nehemiah is not only mourning the loss of his culture, The bad state of some of his, you know, uh, members of his nation and even his family maybe. He's mourning those things, but I think he's actually even mourning something even bigger. And it's the failure of the mission of God's people. Now let me again just give you a little bit of background to what I mean. If we can rewind all the way in the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 12, what we hear is God coming to call a man named Abraham... Out of his pagan life and he says to Abraham, listen, I'm going to do a couple of amazing things through you. I'm going to, one, make you into a great nation. Abraham was childless at the time, so the idea of being a big nation was totally abnormal to him. I'm going to make you into a great nation and then I'm going to place you in a land that I'm going to give you where you are going to bless the world. I'm going to make you into a people and put you in a place, and through you and even out of that place, I'm going to use you to be my vehicle of renewing and redeeming and restoring the world. No small promise there given to Abraham. Well, if you fast forward through the book of Genesis, you finish actually with Abraham having quite a few descendants. God had made good on his promise. And then you open up the book of Exodus, and you see there's actually a lot of these people who were Abraham's descendants. They've grown into a big family, even grown into quite a nation. But guess what? In Exodus 1, they're in the wrong place. They're not in the land that God promised them. They're actually in Egypt, and even worse, they're slaves in Egypt. So God, again, to fulfill His promise, takes them out of Egypt with His mighty hand, with with these great plagues on the Egyptians, he delivers the people through the Red Sea, parting the waters of the Red Sea. He brings them through the desert of Sinai. He meets with them, and he brings them up then to the land where he's going to give them. And then there's this very particular place right there as he's, they're kind of perched on the edge of the Jordan River, about to cross over into conquering the land of Canaan, where Moses preaches this sermon. That sermon is called the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we hear something really important. If you've got a Bible, you can flip it over there, or we've got it actually up on the screen as well. Listen to what God tells his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land with good cities, great and good cities you didn't build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and when you are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. See, Moses tells the people, listen, we're here. We're ready to to accomplish what God has actually given us. But don't forget who brought you here. Don't leave the Lord. Don't forget his grace and his mercy. Don't go chasing after those other things that you're going to see around you. But if you continue reading in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, guess what you get? You get exactly that. God's people did exactly the thing that they were warned not to do. And the story of Israel in the Old Testament can really be summed up by over and over, for the most part, there were kings, leaders in Israel who forgot the Lord and who led the people into idolatry. And so these promises actually given, these warnings given from Deuteronomy 6 begin to come true the people start to stray and then folks around them, the nations around them, begin to take them over. In fact, an entire half of the country, the northern half of the country, ceased to exist in about 722 BC because they were attacked by Assyria. So just one whole half of the country is wiped out. The southern half was just a little bit more faithful and so they lasted a little bit longer, but in 586 the same thing happened and Babylon comes to attack them and take them into exile. And over and over and over what the Old Testament tells us is that the reason that happened is because the people forgot the Lord. And so here we have Nehemiah looking out on Jerusalem, this place that was supposed to be a city on a hill. It was supposed to be a light to the world. It was supposed to be the place that the nations looked in and they saw the Lord at work. And here it is broken and in ruins, set on fire with the wall wall crumbled down. And he looks on it and he weeps, not just for his people, but for the failure of God's people. They have failed in their mission, and it causes him to lament. Now, what do we do with this? Well, here's the thing. That Old Testament people of God, we're told in the Bible, that the Gentiles are grafted into that people and that we as the church become that same people. So we get to say that we as the church are also the people of God and also given the same mission, that God is going to work through us to do his work of renewing and redeeming. So let me ask you the question, when you look around at the church globally, historically, how are we doing in that? Are we upholding our part of the bargain? I'd say in many ways, no. Now, there's about a hundred things we could talk about, about how the church has failed in her mission, but how about just this one? What about the idea that the church is supposed to be unified together? The Bible actually talks a lot about unity. In fact, listen to what the Bible says here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says this finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. God's people are supposed to be together, unified. But we're not all that unified, are we? Um, You know, the Roman Catholic Church, which everybody thinks of as just kind of one big church, actually has 24 distinct divisions in the church. And that's just the Catholics, the Protestants. Thus, are a lot worse. You know, there are actually 64 Baptist denominations in the United States. There are 150 or more Lutheran denominations around the world. And I've actually hidden the number of how many Presbyterian denominations there are around the world, all right? Because it's not so good. And we haven't even scratched the surface then of non-denominational churches, have we? Are we unified? I don't think so. But let me ask, when was the last time that you sat down and you wept and you lamented in prayer for the divisions of the church around the world? When was the last time that you approached the Lord in prayer that you fasted because the church is so divided and broken? Nehemiah actually looks and he recognizes this is the way things are. And what he saw and what he did when he saw it was it made him sad and he brought it to the Lord. He prayed? Friends, we need to remember this, right? That the project starts with prayer. And so we start even in prayer by recognizing the state of things, by looking clearly at what's going on and crying out to the Lord, lamenting, Lord, we, your people, are not doing what we should be doing. That's the first piece. Let's move on to the second piece. It's not just remembering how things are but also remembering how they got that way. Let me read to you again from verse 6. Let your ear, he's talking to the Lord here in prayer, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we've not kept your commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. See, when Nehemiah looks very honestly about what's going on in the world around, about the state of things, the the first conclusion he comes to is, we've got to own this. Again, he knows his Bible pretty well. And he thinks back, I think, even on that passage from Deuteronomy and realizes that what has happened, what God has given a warning against, has happened, and it's happened because of their sin, that God's people have strayed. So that's the first biggest thing to take from this, right, is that it's helpful for us to look at ourselves and look in the mirror and say, you know what, the state of things right now, I got to own part of that. I got to own that. And here's the really interesting thing and probably the thing that's hardest for us as Americans, as Texans, to understand. Is that not only does Nehemiah pray confessing, but he confesses the sins of the people. Corporate confession of corporate sin. Again, that's hard for us. We don't do that a lot. We we practice it a lot, but it's still hard for us to even think through. Now, Now, let me be really clear here, okay, what we're not talking about. I talked to a friend this week, and he said, you know, um, confessing the sins of other people, that's basically what we call gossip. You know, you've heard this, right? You know, y'all just pray for Susan. Uh, She's drinking a lot. And the other day, uh, she got in it with her husband, and I can't talk all about it, but I'm just saying pray for her. Bless her heart. You You know what's coming after that, right? That's confessing the sins of other people. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is actually just the opposite. It's not including someone else in the sins that are just kind of these vague sins right here. It's actually including you in the sins of others. And that's a much bigger deal to say, Lord, here's what the problem is, here's the brokenness, and guess what, I'm a part of it. I'm a part of that brokenness. Again, it's hard for us because we're individual people, But we should get this because we function this way. I mean, if you're in a family, this is how you function. The individual members of your family are individuals themselves, but they're also part of the family. Joy and Virginia and Hampton and Anderson are their own people, but they also share the last name McCollum with me, which means that they are part of my people, and we are part of one another. And friends, the church is built this way. We are intricately tied to one another. We are part of the family of God. We all have the last name Christian. And that means what we do impacts others in that family. And we as a family even need to own the difficulties of others. Now, let me give you one really easy way to do that. One really easy way to understand that you are actually part of the sins of others is to start looking really honestly, in your own heart. You know, Jesus, on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he, he begins to kind of lay out these, these parallels. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's got a few of them, right? Remember, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, with your eyes and in your heart, then you've actually already committed the sin of adultery in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you look at someone hatefully, if you think hatefully about a person, if you speak to them in hateful language, then it's basically the same thing that you've done in your heart. What Jesus is saying is that the seeds in our heart, the seed that leads to adultery, also leads to lust. The seed that leads to murder also leads to anger. And so we've got to trace back those actions to the same seed and look in our own hearts and say, you know what? Maybe I haven't ever murdered anybody. But that little seed in my heart of anger, it's there. And if it grows, there's no telling what it's going to grow into. You know, we may be able to look and say, listen, I've never held a slave. Why should I ever confess the sin of slavery? But you know what? There's a seed in my heart that thinks that I'm better than other people. There's a seed in my heart that thinks that you know, maybe I should have more privileges than other people. And that seed in my heart can end up in something really, really ugly like racism and something really, really terrible like slavery. But even if it doesn't, it's still there. And so when we look around and we say, here are the sins that we're committing corporately, we're doing it because we see those same seeds in our own hearts. That's really important for us to understand as we approach the Lord in prayer even as we go about thinking about doing big things as a church, that we start the project with prayer. And we start that prayer project even with confession, to kneel before the Lord in humility and say, Lord, there is a problem, and guess what? I'm a part of it. All right, let's move on to the third piece, too. Not only do we remember the state of things and our part in it, but here is maybe a surprising piece, is that we ask God even to remember. Uh, let me just look again at that last part here. Um, if you look at verse 8 again, he says this, remember the word that you commanded your service Moses. servant Moses. Nehemiah is asking God to remember. Now, that may seem super weird. Why would Nehemiah be asking God to remember? Does God have a bad memory? Is it that God is an old man that forgets to take his pills and needs to be reminded and just needs somebody to come and be like, hey, I know you forget these things, so here's a little reminder, some sticky notes, you know, on the bathroom mirror. No, God does not forget. In fact, we hear this specifically from Psalm 105. Listen to to the words of Psalm 105. He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. God does not forget things. So why are we asking him to remember? Well, here's what's going on, I think, and there's, this is not the only occasion in the Bible where this happens, is that when God's people are asking God to remember, what they are doing is that they are claiming and proclaiming God's covenant promises on their behalf. They are remembering that God has promised something, and they are proclaiming that promise, and they are saying, I am now coming into and claiming that promise even for my own. I know that's hard language for us sometimes because those words can get manipulated sometimes, this idea of you should go out and claim all of God's promises. That's not what I'm saying. This is not name it and claim it theology we're talking about. What we're saying is that it's helpful for us to remember what God has actually said is true and for us to engage with him in proclaiming that. The 18th century biblical commentator Matthew Henry said this, Our best pleas in prayer are taken from the promises of God, the word on which he has caused us to hope. Isn't that great? Our best pleas in prayer are taken from the promises of God. It is good for you to engage in prayer with God's own words, saying back to him, here's what you promised. Here's what you said. I know this is actually what you have said is true about me and about you, and this is the hope that I have. And so, Nehemiah is actually doing that. In fact, he's showing again his great biblical knowledge. Nehemiah knows his Bible pretty well, and so I think he's pulling a lot from Deuteronomy here. In fact, if you've got a Bible, flip back over to Deuteronomy, or you can look at the screen. It's here as well. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 4, here's what we read. Again, Moses on the banks of the Jordan. This is what he's telling God's people. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations, that sounds like remembering, doesn't it? Where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice and all that I commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes, and he will have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Isn't that beautiful? Nehemiah is calling to mind these wonderful words from the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, you said this. Do you remember, do you remember when you said that if we were scattered and we called upon you for mercy, that you would reply with mercy? Do you remember, Lord, that, that you said that even when we had sinned, if we came in repentance and we fell on our knees before you, that you would always have mercy? Remember when you said that? That's true, right? And he is claiming that wonderful promise and proclaiming it even in prayer. Now I think there are a couple of really great things that we can take from this. And the first, most fundamental thing is this. And listen, if you if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this: when you cry out to God for mercy, He responds. Repentance begets mercy the Bible is shouting that message from every page. When God's people come and they fall on their knees before Him and they say, Lord, have mercy, Jesus always gives it. Friends, if there is any thought in your head right now that's saying, yeah, okay, but maybe not for this stuff, get that thought out of there. Because what Jesus says is that for everything, when you come and you confess and you ask me for mercy and forgiveness, I love to get, I don't even just do it, I love to do it. Jesus rejoices in forgiving sinners. It's why he came. It's what he told actually the Pharisees. I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. I've come to heal. I haven't come for the well. I've come for the sick. You need me and I've come to fill that need. That is why Jesus came. Secondly, though, I think we can hear from this too, is that we also reside in the same kind of place that Nehemiah resided. Nehemiah lived between redemption and restoration, okay? He lived between the time of the exodus when God took His people out of slavery. He redeemed them. It's the central event of the Old Testament, and He placed them in this new place, He lives between that time and the time that God will actually restore that place. Nehemiah will see throughout this book, he's going to get to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get to lead this building project. He's going to renew the walls. Ezra before him went and actually they rebuilt the temple and they read the law. And you see this great restoration of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah at this point is living between those two times. Between redemption and restoration. Restoration. Well, guess what? That's where we live, too. We live between redemption and restoration. Jesus actually came to not only remove us from physical slavery, but to remove us from spiritual slavery. Jesus lived and died and rose again to take on our sin that he might break the bonds of our slavery to our sin that He might free us from the bonds of sin and death, that He might renew us to new life, that He might redeem us. So if your faith is in Christ, you live after that wonderful time. That beautiful truth is true of you, that Jesus has redeemed you. But we live between that redemption and the restoration of all things because God, like Nehemiah, is actually in a really wonderful building project right now. He is currently making all things new i want to read you these wonderful words from revelation 21. this is the apostle john late in his life he's on the isle of patmos where he was exiled to and the lord appears to him in a dream and he gives him a little glimpse of what he's doing and what the future looks like and here's what he writes down in revelation 21. and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald. Friends, can you imagine if Nehemiah had the New Testament? How amazing that would have sounded. Here's Nehemiah that gets this news from his friends to say, Hey, we're in a bad place. The city's broken down. The wall is broken down. We're vulnerable, right, to our enemies. The gate was burned. And to hear this vision from from Jesus saying to John, listen, you may be about to go and and embark on this great kind of wall-building project, this renewal project. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me tell you what that city's going to look like. Not only is the city going to shine and be like gold, but guess what? There's a really big wall around the city, and it's perfectly intact, and it's made of jewels, and it sparkles in the sun. And there not only is one gate that's intact, but there are 12 gates and they're gorgeous and they're made of jewels. Can you imagine how mind-blowing that would have been to Nehemiah? For God to say to Nehemiah, yes, go. Do what I've called you to do. Be a part of this wonderful mission. Go and build and do what you need to do, but never forget this. I'm building something better. And that city, that lasting city, is what you hope in. That is what you remember forward. That is what you claim and proclaim those wonderful promises of God that He is making all things new, and these beautiful, glorious detail for Nehemiah, that that wall building project will be finished. Friends, we start the project with prayer, but that prayer includes that beautiful forward remembering, the hope of claiming and proclaiming the promise of what God has done and is doing, that He is making all things new. That is our prayer this morning. It's our prayer as we walk into this fall and start to even talk about building things ourselves, is that God has given us some things to do. We get to be excited about that. But the biggest thing to be excited about is what God is doing in the world. So will you pray with me in that way right now? Father, we are so grateful that we get to ask you to remember your promises because we know that you don't forget, because we know, Lord, that those promises are true. They are written in stone. They cannot change. And so, Lord, when we ask you to remember them, we are not asking uh, out of fear. We are asking in wonderful hope. Will you remember your promise? to renew and restore, to bring back your people, to, to gather us together into the wonderful building project that you're about right now. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.